Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself if you dare. Come, inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 23. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. We have three stories for you to feast your ears upon this evening, from authors James Newman and Adam Howe followed by another sample from the bombastic bloodfest that is our happy audiobook collaboration, Scapegoat, read by yours truly, Jason Hill. So I'll be up front with you about this. Tonight's stories veer a little... dark. So I'll reiterate that this evening's program is very much for a mature audience. You're listening to the standard edition of this program, If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, 
Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons at the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Our first story tonight proves to us that sometimes the lines between imagination and reality are best left uncrossed. Without further ado, from author James Newman, I give you The Good, The Bad, and The Maladjusted. John Henry Mason never lost a fight. Such was his claim to fame back home in Dodge City. Such it became wherever he traveled upon life's dusty roads. There is a first time for everything, though. John found himself thinking in spite of himself. As he fought for air, now beneath the vice grip of his assailant's rock-hard forearm. That dad-blamed engine had jumped John from slap out of nowhere. Like some wild Quixote on peyote. And right away, John cursed himself for letting his guard down even for a second. You couldn't do that. Not with so many of these savages still prowling around out here. Good way to get yourself scalped. He'd been minding his own business, stopping only for a minute or two to take a load off by the river, using his trusty black Stetson as a makeshift mug while he hummed Oh Susanna and daydreamed of his woman back home, when suddenly, with a primal war cry, the red man had lunged from atop the massive boulder overlooking John Mason's temporary rest stop. Before John knew what hit him, he was down, with a mouthful of riverbed, the engine got him in a nasty chokehold from behind. John could feel the wild man's hot breath on the back of his neck. Smelled like ash and burnt jerky. You red-skinned dog dick! John wheezed, fumbling for his Colt 45 and its bearskin holster on his hip. The only thing John Mason hated worse than friggin' engines was rattlesnakes and claim jumpers. And at least rattlesnakes and claim jumpers had reasons for doing the things they did. Stinking engines. They was just mean for the sake of being so. Always so proud of it, too. The sun beat down on the two fighting men like some fiery desert god. Perhaps some ancient deity this engine and his own tribe might have worshipped. That thought sickened a good god-fearing, sometimes church-going gent like John Henry Mason. Made him start thrashing harder than ever. Sweat rolled down his forehead, burned his eyes. But he didn't let that bother him. Yeah! John bellowed, and he brought one booted heel down hard as he could on the savage's naked toes. His spur ripped flesh from the engine's shin on the way down, drawing gouts of dark engine blood, and the engine screamed in animal agony. His hold on John's throat went slack. Ha! John said, whirling to face the brave. I'm gonna kill you now, chief walking turd. Even as John boasted, he rubbed at his bruised Adam's apple, coughed once, 
but that gleam in his eye sparkled nonetheless. He spat bloody saliva at the engine's feet, bared his teeth, and let that mischievous grin of his stretch from ear to ear. John Henry Mason sure did love a good fight. More so because John Mason never ever lost, especially to no low-life engine. The engine, John saw now, might have been his own age, perhaps slightly younger. The varmint was small and wiry, but quite muscular, and it was so hard to tell with these bastards anyway, seeing how they all looked the same. His skin was very dark, leather-like and sun-worn, his face a hard mask of pure fury. His straight black hair, so black it was almost blue, like the feathers of a raven, fell just past the engine's shoulders. Kind of reminded John of that ebony-haired whore he'd spent the night with last week in one of Tombstone's finer brothels. Ready to die, boy? John growled. Maybe I'll scout you. Take that sissy boy hair of yours when I'm done. Make a wig from a woman. Mayawe, hute tute, gawagum, replied the engine, taunting John. John couldn't wait to kill him now, though he hadn't the slightest clue what the asshole said. Same back at your mama, Tomahawk. John came in swinging fast and furious then. He could have used his pistol, sure, but then that would have been too quick. Better to pound this uncivilized prick with his very own bare white knuckles. And immediately, the engine had his knife out. Such a primitive tool, but John Mason respected its inherent danger all the same. Arcane markings decorated its rawhide hilt, swirled up and down the length of its jagged gray-brown blade. The business end appeared to have been painstakingly carved from stone, or maybe bone. Nice piece you got there, engine, John said. Too bad you ain't gonna get no chance to use it. You're one dead redskin. The engine almost seemed to smile at John, as if, just maybe, he understood. And then suddenly, the engine swung. Faster than the eye, he moved, lashing out again and again with nary the slightest pause. John Mason said, Ugh! Looked down. His eyes went wide as cow patties. He couldn't believe it. Goddang bastard to cut him! Not much, but a little. Enough to sting anyways. Along his abdomen, perfectly bisecting his washboard stomach. John saw a thin line of crimson that only a few seconds later actually started to leak. Why, you dirty son of a... Playtime was over. John Mason was going to make this godless piece of horse manure wish he'd never been freaking born. He didn't stand around waiting for the engine to cut him again. John's boot came up, and with a bellow of unbridled rage, he kicked that no-good engine so hard in the nuts his squall must have felt it back home. The engine yowled like a cat caught in a bear trap, grabbed himself, and bent over. Ha! John Mason said. Screw it. John figured. To hell with doing this slow. You couldn't fight these redskin sons of bitches fair anyhow. He wasn't even human. So, with that, John Mason pulled out his Colt 45. Even as he did, he could smell that well-oiled gun smell he loved so. And he smiled. And he shot that stinking engine three times. 
Pow, pow, pow. Once in each kneecap. Once in the stomach for good measure. The engine roared in agony, but only for a couple of minutes. His gut leaked dark fluid all over the place, on the rocks, in the otherwise crystal clear creek water John Mason had been drinking just minutes before. He'd be retiring to engine heaven any minute now. How you like them apples, Geronimo? John spat in the red man's face before putting away his gun. Then he leaned down to retrieve the homemade knife his assailant had dropped beside a rotting steer skull nearby. He admired the weapon, turning it over several times in his hands. Nice. Without further ado, John Mason started sawing at the engine's neck, working at removing that ugly, war-painted head from those thin but muscular shoulders. Got me a trophy now, chief, he said. Teach you to mess with old John Henry Mason. John began to whistle Oh Susanna as he worked, hacking, sawing, ripping and tearing through muscle and sinew and bone. John Henry Mason never lost a fight. By God, some folks just had to learn the hard way. Ten minutes later, he sat up with a start, peered past the crest of the hill on the other side of the riverbank when he heard her urgent calling. The only sound, otherwise, was the steady gurgle of water over rocks, the rhythmic drip-dripping of blood and viscous matter from the blade in his left hand. Johnny! He heard her call, and he could imagine her there on the doorstep in her kiss-the-cook apron, one hand covered in flour up to her elbow, the other swallowed up in that number one mom potholder she'd made for her last Mother's Day. Again... Johnny! Her voice, so high and shrill. Damn, woman! How it grated on his nerves. Johnny, baby! Come on, dinner's ready! Somewhere down the block, a dog barked as if answering his mother's call all alone. Probably the Parkinson's Australian shepherd, Gary. That big, mean bitch. Johnny Mason smirked. Dinner. Time sure flies when you're having fun. Johnny, come on, baby! She was yelling across the backyard now, her voice echoing all over the neighborhood. It was embarrassing. Tell your little friend he's welcome to eat with us too if he'd like. There's plenty for everyone! Johnny couldn't help but chuckle at that. His little friend. He gazed down at the shirtless, shoeless body before him now, at the face war-painted with magic marker scribbles the body of the little black boy from down the street, whose name he could never remember. The kid had been begging to play with Johnny ever since his family moved here two weeks ago, but before today, Johnny had never really been interested. Until the colored boy had proposed a game of cowboys and Indians. Now that, it sounded like fun. But I get to be the cowboy, Johnny had insisted pocketing the gun he'd found in his dad's top dresser drawer, giving the nigger the knife. I get to be the cowboy, and you're the stinking engine. To which the black boy had nodded, like that was the best damn plan he'd ever heard. Johnny stood now, moved to wash his sticky red hands in the river, before running home to dinner, 
beneath the day's slow-dying sun. This episode of Horror Hill is proudly brought to you by BetterHelp. Guys, things are getting pretty rough out there, and I don't think I have to cite too many specific details to get a nod of agreement from you. Now, I work hard, and I play much harder. But I still get burnt out. And when it happens, it happens for a long time. It's like my brain is carrying a backpack full of bricks up a mountain, and it doesn't just go away. And I work in the healthcare system, and I know most of the therapists. And I don't want to go to a therapist that I know. Because, well, that should be self-evident. Now, I'm sorry for raising my voice. But I think it was important to touch on some of those points to show you the utility of a service like BetterHelp for people like me and, of course, many, many others. Everyone has periods in their life when they feel like something is interfering with their happiness or preventing them from achieving their goals. What BetterHelp does is assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist online. Get started now, and you could be communicating with a mental health professional in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, and it is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Now, some of you may not understand what that is like, but there are areas in this country that are essentially mental health care deserts. And it is not fair that people who live in those areas should have to face these struggles alone. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com hill. That's Better, H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact... So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As a special offer for Horror Hill listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com hill. Remember, that's betterhelp.com slash hill. Thank you for your support of this program and of the sponsors that make it possible. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So, finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. 
It's just what happens when you two find a new place together. But you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them. Because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet, so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com. The place to find a pet-friendly place. You've been listening to The Good, The Bad, and The Maladjusted by author James Newman. Again, be sure to stick around after the stories for another special bonus reading from the new audiobook that is redefining the comedy horror genre and might just be the greatest novel ever written. Scapegoat Written by Adam Howe and James Newman and read by none other than yours truly. So hilarious, you'll wet your pants laughing. So terrifying, you'll shit yourself with fear. Good thing you stocked up on all that toilet paper this spring. Our second egregious anecdote comes from the mind of author Adam Howe. A brilliant mind that goes to some very twisted places. Again, I must reiterate that this program is really and truly intended for mature audiences. You have been warned. Now, without further ado, from author Adam Howe, I give you... Foreign Bodies. I flew in on the red eye, arriving at dawn at the address in the burbs that the panicked voice on the phone had given me. Climbing from my hire car, with a satchel containing my tools of the trade, I crept up the concrete walls to the door and rang the buzzer. A man's shrill voice called my name faintly from somewhere inside. With a glance at the neighbor's place, satisfying myself no early bird snoopers were watching from the windows... I went into the hall. It was quiet. In the movies, they called this kind of quiet too quiet. The hell was everybody? This was supposed to be a family home. According to my intel, my client had been staying here with his son since he checked out of rehab. Buddy? My voice echoed in the stillness of the house. Upstairs. The voice cracked with fatigue. I padded upstairs to the landing, put my palm to the door of the master bedroom, stealing myself for whatever I might find on the other side. In my line of work, about the only thing you can count on, it's never pretty. Pushing the door open, I entered the shadowy bedroom, blindly treading on a rubber cock that stiffened beneath my shoe with an angry squeak and scared the bejesus out of me. The dildo was just one of an orgy of sex toys erupting from the open suitcase at the foot of the bed and scattered across the carpeted floor. The client was sprawled face down on the bed. I'd never seen the old man without his rug before. The toupee was curled at the pillow beside him like a glossy chestnut-brown lapdog. Without his hairpiece, the wizened old man looked the love child of Don Rickles and Zelda from the Poltergeist movies. He was otherwise naked, too, 
which was bad news for a lot of reasons, not least of his shabby shape and coarse pelt of back hair. In a pitiful attempt to preserve his last shred of dignity, he'd swaddled a silk tiger print robe around his lower back and upper thighs. Sadly, this only drew more attention to the cardboard postal tube jutting up like a periscope from between his bare buttocks. On the nightstand was an empty bottle of Jack and a small mound of coke that probably been bigger when he'd called me for help, a tube of lube, and a vial of amyl nitrine, which explained the wince-worthy depth of the tube in his ass, if not the tube itself, plus a framed photo portrait of his son, daughter-in-law, and six-year-old granddaughter. The family seemed to be grinning in unanimous approval. Perched on a chair in the corner of the room was Scamp McRaskill, wearing shit-kicker dungarees and clodhoppers, with his fire-engine red thatch of hair, jug ears, freckled face. The puppet looked like the bastard offspring of Howdy Doody and Chucky from the Child's Play movies. Grinning his famous gap-toothed grin, Scamp sat watching the scene in the bed like a cheerily cuckolded husband, jacking off while some gigolo bones his old lady. On the side table was a wire cage for a small animal, the cage was bedded with sawdust and a nest of shredded tissue paper. It had a running wheel, water dispenser, a little bowl filled with nuts, and a gnawed toilet paper tube, almost like a scale model of the postal tube jutting out from my client's ass. Attached to the front of the cage was a child's lovingly hand-painted sign. The sign said, Jerry. The R's were written backwards. Whether the kid was Russian or it was a damning indictment of the education system. Then, I suddenly realized there was no sign of Jerry inside the cage. My heart started hammering and I broke into a cold sweat. This was worse than I'd feared. There comes a time in every puppeteer's career, all those years with his hand up inside a puppet... He starts to wonder, how would it feel if the shoe was on the other foot, so to speak? For beloved children's entertainer Buddy Mortimer, a.k.a. Uncle Buddy, a.k.a. Mr. Family Entertainment, it started with small items at first. For years, the cast and crew of Scamp McRaskill's Playhouse had innocently believed Uncle Buddy was a closet kleptomaniac, and a glutton when it came to certain phallic foodstuffs from craft services, whole carrots, cucumbers, and kielbasas. Forgivable sins for a star of his magnitude, easily swept under the rug. Visitors to the set were discreetly warned to keep any pocket-sized valuables on their person, lest they vanish around Buddy. What no one suspected, least of all the parents of the children of America who for thirty years of Saturday mornings had entrusted their brats to Uncle Buddy and his puppet, Scamp McRaskill, was that Mr. Family Entertainment was cashing in Aladdin's cave of contraband up his keister. Six months ago, Buddy had been outed when the airport security detained him with what appeared to be an improvised explosive device in his colon. A tense cavity search, bomb squad, dogs, short-circuit-style robots, the works followed by a painful and humiliating extraction, revealed the IED to be nothing more harmful than a lady's wristwatch. 
But the damage it did to Buddy's career was quite explosive. The watch was linked back to a pro named Ramona, nay, Raymond, a she-he who specialized in fisting. Ramona's current whereabouts were unknown. She'd missed out on cashing in her 15 minutes of fame, perhaps living the high life on the hush money Buddy paid her. But, according to Ramona's pimp, who sold his story to the scandal rags, she had last been employed in the service of Uncle Buddy Mortimer. It was never established if Buddy was aware the watch had disengaged in her ass, or if he'd been sporting it there as a perverse trophy. In the aftermath of the airport bust, not to mention the Ramona Raymond revelations, Buddy's career as a children's entertainer was over. He'd burned down Scamp McRaskill's playhouse. But, despite the scandal, even now, he played his cards right and a comeback of sorts was still a possibility. Why the hell not? We forgave Pee Wee Herman. Eventually. The past six months, Buddy had been rehabbing for pick an addiction, hiding out from the tabloids until the shitstorm blew over and the muckrakers found their next pinata. Now he was out, supposedly cured, sin-free and sorry as hell, eager to start his dishonor lap of the talk shows. He'd turn on the waterworks, feed him the whole tears of a clown bit, and, most important of all, plug his upcoming autobiography. All he had to do was stay out of trouble. That's where I came in. Joe Conklin. Joseph Conklin Solutions LTD. The A-list gets Ray Donovan. The lower end of the alphabet gets me. Of course, there's only so much the fixer can fix. I glanced between the empty small animal cage and the cardboard tube in Buddy's ass. Buddy forced a sheepish smile. It's not what it looks like, Joe. Glad to hear it, I said. Because all signs are pointing to you having Jerry the whatever the fuck up your ass. Buddy wet his lips with a nervous flick of his tongue. All right, so maybe it is what it looks like. What I meant was, I could explain... I could see him thinking how best he could sugarcoat it, much as a man can sugarcoat the rodent in his ass. He glanced at Scamp in the corner of the room. I said, If you ever think about blaming that puppet, but he blew out a sigh. All right, so maybe I can't explain either. Christ's sakes, buddy. I paced the room, stepping on the squeaky cock once more and kicking it angrily away from me. It ricocheted off the closed door of the in-suite bathroom like a rubber bullet. You had one job. Don't stick anything up your ass until after the talk show tour. Was that really so hard? It just happened, Joe. No! Things like this don't just happen. After six months of rehab, I thought I was on top of this anal fixation thing. But he shook his head ruefully. I mean, sheesh, Joe. You think you're surprised? You came here to stay with the kid to stay out of trouble, I reminded him. I gestured to the photo of Buddy's son on the nightstand. After everything you've put him through, that kid's gotta be a fucking saint letting you anywhere near his family. And this is how you repay him? Buddy's eyes welled with tears. 
He bowed his head in shame. It occurred to me again how quiet the house was. Where is everybody anyway? Aaron's mother got sick. According to my intel, Aaron was the daughter-in-law, the smiling, plump blonde of the family photo, old-fashioned floral dress, crucifix necklace, the wholesome church-going type. They left last night for Florida, Buddy said. And for what it's worth, if they hadn't left me on my own, none of this would have happened. So it's their fault. Takes two to tango's all I'm saying. When are you expecting them back? Tonight? So, time is of the essence. You could say that, yeah. I considered the problem before me. What are we dealing with here? What is... Jerry? Buddy cast his eyes down and in a hoarse voice said, Jerry's a gerbil, Joe. I glanced at the lovingly hand-painted sign on Jerry's cage and the photo of Buddy's granddaughter on the nightstand. Buddy choked down a sob. She can never find out. It was all I could do just to shake my head at him. You gotta understand, Joe. It's this wake-up America spot. I've been climbing the walls. I'm so nervous about it. Wake Up America was the first stop on Buddy's comeback tour. Major network, national exposure. Buddy aced Wake Up America, charmed the anchor Wendy Wong, and the gravy train was back on the rails and rolling again. I needed something to take the edge off, he went on. So I called for a masseuse. This masseuse, I said. He in the book? Well, not exactly, Buddy said. But that's all I wanted, just a back rub, I swear. Well, the kid shows up. Of course he recognizes me, says he used to watch the show every Saturday morning. A fan, you know? He knows the scamp McRascal secret handshake and everything. Nice kid. He tells me he's sorry for my recent troubles. I think he's being sincere. Why wouldn't I? Then, he says, well, casual-like, I see you got a gerbil next door. Not knowing where he's going with this, thinking the kids just make him polite, I say, my granddaughters, yeah. Then, he says, still casual like, mm, you ever tried it with the gerbil before? I says to him, and now I'm starting to get a funny feeling about the kids' line of questioning, I says, tried what? He says, come on. Like I'm shining him on, you know, like that actor used to be married to Claudia Schiffer. He's got the actor's wife wrong, but I knew the guy he meant. I says, I don't do that kind of stuff no more, kid. All forceful like. You would have been proud of me, Joe. I says, all I want is a back rub. Nothing else. Firm. But the kid, that fucking kid... He's planted the seed in my mind, and now he starts watering it, describing how it feels. The tiny claws, the bushy tail, brushing the walls of my colon, the whiskers tickling my prostate. Buddy swallowed hard. I'm telling you, Joe, the way the kid sold it, even you would have been tempted. I sincerely fucking doubt that. After that, it all happened so fast. We're knocking him back, we're snorting blow. Next thing I know, I got this tube up my ass and a gerbil inside me. And I won't lie to you, Joe. 
It's everything the kids said it would be. Only better. I'm in heaven. Then there's this flashlight and suddenly I'm in hell because now the kid's got a camera in his hands and he's telling me he wants 50 G's. Elsie's taking the picture to the tabloids. I closed my eyes, pinched the bridge of my nose between my forefinger and thumb, and let out a long sigh. Fucking celebrities. This kid, I said. Where is he now? Forget about the kid, Buddy told me. I took care of it. Have you even got 50 G's? I guess it was possible he could have squirreled away a little rainy day money. I don't have to tell you where. The kid's not the issue, Joe. No. In all the commotion, Jerry must have panicked. He started burrowing up into my guts like something from Alien. Now, I got a high pain threshold. As you know, no shit. But jeez. Buddy winced at the memory. This was something else the pain was so bad I almost called for an ambulance. Luckily, common sense prevailed. Common sense? Uh, right. I'm going to go to the hospital with a gerbil up my ass? I'm not sure my insurance even covers that. So, instead of an ambulance, I called you, Mr. Fix-It. He buttered me up with a you're-my-hero grin. And I haven't moved from this bed since. I knew you'd know what to do. I wasn't sure if I should be flattered or insulted, I said. Is... Is it even still alive? I've been lying here so long my whole lower body's gone numb. I can't feel nothing from the waist down. He jerked his head back at the tube in his ass. Was hoping you could tell me. And to think there had once been a time when I'd thought working for a star like Uncle Buddy Mortimer was a glamour gig. The pay was better than my regular fix-it work for the Z-less celebrities, but man, it sure came at a price. I took a wary step towards the bed and caught a violent whiff of ass and pet store, wafting from the open end of the tube. I staggered back, swatting at the air and retching shaking my head like a prizefighter trying to shake off a knockdown punch. Nope, I said. Forget it. This ain't what I do. This ain't burying a news story or making a DWI go away. I didn't sign up for this. But you gotta help me here, Joe. I can't go and wake up America like this. Maybe you should have thought about that before you stuck a gerbil up your ass. I'm begging you, please. Name your price my price. Of course I had one. I'm not proud. But what was the going rate for extracting a gerbil from a man's ass? The 50 G's you paid the kid, I said. I assume when we're done here, you expect me to get it back. Well, sure, but first things first, huh? When I do, the money's mine. I'd expected him to haggle, but he must have realized that under the circumstances, the last thing he could afford was to be a tight ass done. I'd shake your hand, I told him. But he nodded, he understood. I peeled off my jacket, slung it over the grinning puppet in the corner. Hey! Buddy cried. Careful, a scamp! You might like an audience, I said. I do not. I brooded through my satchel for a pen light and a pair of latex gloves, tools of the trade. 
Then I clamped a handkerchief over my nose and mouth like a surgical mass cum-breathing apparatus and started taking tentative steps towards the bed. The pen light shook in my hand as I shone the beam down the tube. Eyes watering in disgust, I forced myself to peer into the black depths of Buddy's elementary canal. What was it Nietzsche said about gazing into the abyss? You see anything? Buddy said over his shoulder. Too much, I said, turning off the pen light. But no gerbil. I went and opened a window for some fresh air, wishing I could bleach my eyeballs. Damn it, Buddy said. That son bitch must be dug in like an Alabama tick. You're sure it's in there, right? I didn't put it past the sick fuck that this was some perverted sex game, that he'd lured me to the house under false pretenses and was getting his rocks off while I performed my makeshift colonoscopy. But he bristled in offense. I am a lot of things, Joe, but I am not a liar. All right. I tried to think. Mostly, I tried not to puke. You're going to have to turn on your side. I told you I can't move. I'm going to roll you. Just mind you don't crush Jerry inside me. It's a little late to start worrying about Jerry's welfare. I climbed onto the bed behind Buddy, gripped his shoulders, and rolled him onto his side until the length of the tube in his ass extended towards me across the mattress. Cover yourself, would you? He fetched his toupee off the pillow and covered his genitals, the rug like a glossy chestnut-brown modesty patch. I climbed off the bed, kneeled down beside it, facing the open end of the tube. Then... What the hell else could I do? I whistled for Jerry and called his name in a high-pitched voice. But he looked at me sharply over his shoulder. It's not a dog, Joe. It's not going to come to heel. He shook his head. Didn't you have pets as a kid? Well, yeah, sure, a goldfish. I added defensively. My mother had allergies. Go down to the kitchen, Buddy said. There's cheese in the refrigerator. All this time in your ass, you really think Jerry's going to have an appetite. After getting that whiff from the tube, I wasn't sure I'd ever eat again, Buddy said. And bring a couple slices of bread and some ham, too. I frowned. You want I should fix him a sandwich? A sandwich is for me. I just looked at him. I've been lying here half the night, he shrugged. I've got my blood sugar to consider. As I went downstairs, of course I considered just fleeing that madhouse. The only thing keeping me there was Buddy's promise of 50 G's. I told myself I'd remove the gerbil from his ass, like that was going to be a cakewalk. Retrieve the incriminating photo and the money from the... masseuse. As if that be any easier. And then Buddy and me were done. In the kitchen, I was about to open the refrigerator when I saw the child's crayon drawing pinned to the door with a scamp McRascal magnet. The drawing showed Uncle Buddy and Scamp, the puppet with his stepchild red thatch of hair and gappy grin, the old man with his rat's nest toupee. Grandpa plus Scamp, the scrawled and childish hand beside the two figures. The R in Grandpa was written backwards, like the R's in the sign on Jerry's cage. Uncle Buddy and Scamp were leaning from the window of a treehouse that I guess was supposed to be Scamp McRascal's playhouse. They were waving down at an angelic little blonde girl with me scrawled next to her. 
the little angel was proudly holding up her pet gerbil for Grandpa to see. My heart sank. Joe! I startled at Buddy's screeching voice. What's wrong? I called back to him. Mustard! For the sandwich! Cursing him under my breath, I fetched a saran-wrapped chunk of cheddar off the shelf. Then, with a last despairing glance at the drawing on the fridge, I trudged back upstairs. Buddy said, Where's my sandwich? You can stick your sandwich up... (sighs) I didn't finish the sentence. I am not here as your personal chef, Buddy. I unwrapped the cheese and placed it on the bed at the open end of the tube. Then, I backed away to the wall slid down it to the floor, and sat there to wait. Buddy said, You mind if I rehearse my wake-up America apology? It was a rhetorical question. As Buddy droned on, I zoned out his voice and gazed at the family portrait on the nightstand, the forgiving son, the devoted daughter-in-law, the adoring granddaughter. The little girl's innocent blue eyes bored into me, gnawing at my conscience like Jerry gnawing at Buddy's guts. The kid's parents could have told her about the shame Grandpa had brought upon the family. That was a conversation I didn't envy them. Birds and bees was one thing, keistering quite another. Of course, it was only a matter of time before the other kids at her school spilled the sordid beans and her innocence was shattered. And what about all the other children whose trust Uncle Buddy had betrayed? For an entire generation, their happy memories of Saturday morning television were irrevocably tainted. I couldn't bear the little girl looking at me a second longer. Turn that picture down, would you? Muddy started reaching for the portrait. Suddenly, he screamed and then started to convulse, as if the tube in his ass was a live cattle prod. Yeah! For the love of Christ, make it stop! He thrashed his hands as if to fend off the pain. The family portrait was knocked to the floor and shattered. I scrambled to my feet. What is it? I pictured the gerbil chewing through Buddy's colon like a rat chewing through a sardine tin. Jerry, 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 he's moving! North or south? Um, north! Pucker up! I cried. Pucker up! Buddy tensed his sphincter, clenched his colon, gritting his teeth with effort. I think I got him. He gasped, tears leaking from his eyes. All right, I said, rolling up my shirt sleeves. No more screwing around. I told Buddy what I needed. Are you fucking nuts? Said the guy with the gerbil in his ass. You got any better suggestions? He told me where to find what I'd asked for. Hurry, Buddy said, sweat streaming down his face. I can't hold him like this much longer. I returned to the room, lugging a Henry Hoover. Buddy cried out in horror as he saw the cheery eyes and lunatic smile painted on the red tub of the Henry's body. The Henry's vacuum hose nose snaked across the carpet in my wake. I fitted the slimmest attachment to the vacuum hose. Then I started feeding it slowly into the tube in Buddy's ass. Careful as a model ship enthusiast raising the sails of a ship in a bottle trying not to panic Jerry more than he already was. As I fed the Henry's nose deeper into Buddy's ass, I glanced back at the grinning face painted on the Hoover's red tub body. Who ever thought to anthropomorphize a fucking vacuum cleaner? 
Had they ever envisioned a scenario like this? The Henry's nose reached its end, but he flinched and let out a whimper. Now, I said, when I hit this switch, you gotta push. Let's think this thing through a second, Joe. I flipped the switch. The Henry roared to life. Buddy screamed. I yelled, Push, goddamn you! Buddy bit down on his pillow, pushing and straining, his face flushing red, the tendons cording his neck, the pillow muffling his screams. The vacuum hose bucked in my hands as the Henry snorted everything weighty through the tube. A gerbil, I hoped, and not one of Buddy's vital organs. There was a muffled thump as it was sucked into the red tub of the Henry's body. I yanked the Henry's plug from the wall, silencing the roaring vacuum. Buddy teetered from the bed, clutching the nightstand for balance, the tube at his ass waggling like a cardboard tail. Squatting awkwardly, he reached between his legs, gripped the tube, and then wrenched it from his rectum like Arthur freeing Excalibur from the stone. He dropped the tube to the floor and crumpled to his knees, sobbing with relief as he dragged his tiger print robe around him. I tore the Henry's body open and ripped the vacuum bag apart with my hands. A blinding cloud of dust billowed out, choking the bedroom. A single shit-smeared gerbil thudded lifelessly to the carpet. I pumped Jerry's chest with my fingertips, trying to jumpstart his tiny heart. Even if he hadn't spent the night stuck in Buddy's ass, wasn't caked in shit, I drew the line at giving a gerbil mouth-to-mouth. I bowed my head. I'm calling it. He's gone. Buddy said, Jerry's dead. I glared at him. What the hell did you expect? Peeling off my gloves, I started towards the end suite to wash my hands. Thoroughly. Buddy called out. Joe, wait! But I'd already opened the door. A young man wearing a white PVC masseuse's smock was sprawled inside the bathtub. The leather flails of a cat whip were coiled around his throat. His neck was bruised and swollen. His face flushed purple. His bloodshot eyes bugged from his face, staring at me lifelessly. I wheeled around. Buddy stood blocking the door. In his hand was a 38 snub. The barrel pointed at my chest. I showed him my palms. Whoa! Easy now, buddy. I didn't mean for you to see this, Joe. I was gonna fix this one myself. I nodded my head towards the body in the tub. Wasn't blackmail, was it? Which meant... Shit. There was no 50 Gs. Buddy didn't answer. And Ramona? I said. This explained her... His... Mysterious disappearance. Jesus, buddy. How many have there been? How many others? His lips teased into a smirk. Something terrible glinted in his eyes. I may have removed the gerbil from his ass, but there was another animal inside Buddy Mortimer. A wild beast with sharp fangs and insatiable appetites. You gotta understand, Joe. I need these things. All the happiness and joy I brought to people through the years, it's not too much to ask. Hell, I deserve them. Is the world really gonna miss trash like this? He wrinkled his nose, shook his head prissily. Now, he said, are you gonna help me fix this? 
I glanced at the gun in his hand. Whatever you say, buddy. Go fetch a hatchet, a saw, and some garbage bags from the garbage. He considered the body of the tub. Four ought to do it. But it turned out three were all we needed. By the time I was finished, no one would have guessed the bathroom was a murder scene. The place was spotless, every tile gleaming white. The tools I'd used to hack and saw the masseuse into pieces had been scrubbed clean and set to dry. The three bulging garbage bags were placed neatly next to the door. I laid Jerry to rest inside a Ritz cracker box casket, vacuumed the bedroom carpet, made the bed with fresh sheets. Buddy cleaned the booze and blow from the nightstand and packed his sex toys back into his suitcase, including that damn squeaky cock and the cat whip he'd strangled the kid with. Throughout it all, Scamp McRascal smiled from his perch in the corner, a silent accomplice. We drove my hire car to a spot in the woods Buddy knew, dumped the kid's remains in the river. As we watched the garbage bags sink, I wondered how many other times Buddy had been to this spot, maybe every time he visited his family. Now, Buddy said, there's just one last thing to fix. He turned towards me with a gun in his hand. I'd already resigned myself to how this was going to end, but instead of plugging me, he said, Jerry, I frowned, but, um, Jerry's dead. Buddy grinned. My granddaughter's only six years old. You really think she'll know the difference between one fucking gerbil and another? Buddy waited in the car while I went inside the pet store alone. He didn't want to run the risk of being star-spotted buying a gerbil. People might leap to the correct conclusion. He took my cell phone before letting me out of his sight. Wouldn't want you calling the cops. Or the men in white coats with the butterfly nets, I thought. But... He needn't have worried. After hoovering Jerry from Buddy's ass, I was hardly thinking straight to begin with. Dismembering the masseuse had pushed me right over the edge, driven me blood simple. I returned from the store carrying a small box with a perforated lid. I climbed back in the car and gave Buddy the box. He pried up the lid, peered inside, and grinned. Any problems? I lied and told him no. We drove in silence back to the burbs. I pulled up outside the house. You done good today, Joe. He made it sound like I'd passed an audition. And maybe I had. About that fifty grand we talked about. I dredged up my voice. Forget about the money. He frowned at me. All I want is out. I told him. Ow. He looked at me in stark surprise. You mean, leave showbiz? I nodded. He drummed his fingers thoughtfully on the lid of the gerbil box. You wouldn't rat-fuck me now, would you, Joe? I glanced at the box in his lap and shook my head. Because I go down, I'm taking you with me. You think people will believe you only ever helped me dump one body? I understand. Fine. You want out? You've earned it. I guess. He studied my glazed expression with something like grandfatherly concern. Give it a few days, Joe. All this will seem like nothing but a bad dream. He winked at me. He'll see. He started climbing from the car. Buddy, I said. 
He glanced back at me. Break a leg on Wake Up America. He grinned. You know I will, kid. Don't forget to tune in. Oh, I wouldn't miss it for the world. The next morning, slumped at the bar in the airport lounge, waiting for my flight home, I necked my beer, ordered another, and thought about the run of bad luck and worse life choices that led me to work for a monster like Uncle Buddy Mortimer. I wondered about my other celebrity clients. What skeletons were they hiding in their closets? What dirty secrets were they keeping from their own fixer? I glanced at my haunted reflection in the back bar mirror. Was I doing the right thing not calling the cops? Then I remembered my visit to the pet store. It clearly wasn't the first time the storekeeper had been complicit in the cover-up of a deceased pet. Like me, she was a fixer. She peered inside Jerry Ritz's cracker box casket, recoiled slightly at the stench, but, to her credit, let it slide without comment. One brown female gerbil. She went to find a ringer. Before I could tell her I believed Jerry had originally been white, I suddenly registered what she'd said. Female? And by the looks of her, the woman said, very recently pregnant. Nursing the dregs of my beer, I stared intently at the airport lounge's TV screen. Wendy Wong was welcoming Buddy and Scam to the Wake Up America couch. Buddy took a seat, perching Scamp on his lap. Buddy's autobiography was displayed prominently on the coffee table. The old man's voice cracked with emotion as he described to Wendy Wong the living hell of his secret life as a keisterer. As Buddy recalled his time in rehab and his painful journey towards self-enlightenment, Scamp reached up a spindly arm and brushed a tear from his master's cheek. Even Wendy Wong choked down the lump in her throat. Do you have anything to say to the children of America? She coaxed him. Buddy took a deep breath. Yes, Wendy, yes I do. The old man cleared his throat, staring soulfully into the camera, steeling himself to deliver the heartfelt apology that would win him America's forgiveness. Then he suddenly sat bolt upright, the color bleeding from his face. Scamp's jaw dropped open, his glass eyes rolling spastically back in his head. Buddy shuddered on the couch, wild-eyed, breaking into a sweat that soaked through his snazzy suit. His lips trembled as he cut a long foghorn of gas. Wendy frowned in concern. Uncle Buddy? Is, is everything... Buddy clutched his gut and bellowed in pain. Then he sprang to his feet and flung Scamp from his wrist, the puppet flopping lifelessly across the coffee table. Screaming, Buddy started yanking at his clothes, tearing his pants down, ripping off his underwear. Wendy Wong cried out in horror as Buddy nakedly squatted and shat a shower of hairless pink baby gerbils into every home in America. The live TV transmission cut to static. Then, a Please Stand By card appeared. Muzak played. A crowd of people thronged the airport lounge bar around me, staring at the TV in shocked silence. I raised my glass to Jerry, a.k.a. Geraldine, 
and said, Come back from that, buddy, you son of a bitch. Tonight's episode of Horror Hill is proudly brought to you by HelloFresh. No joke, things in this episode are going to get a little bit intense. So, before we turn up the dark, I'd like to take a few moments to talk to you about deliciousness. Now, it shouldn't come as any surprise that I like to live deliciously. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Oh, I think you do. That's why I'd like to talk to you about HelloFresh. What is HelloFresh? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it just so happens that HelloFresh is the meal delivery service crossfire typhoon culinary revolution happening in kitchens across the country. Get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door and skip those trips to the grocery store, because let's face it, the grocery store kind of sucks. And HelloFresh makes cooking fun, easy, affordable, and sexy. Take it from somebody who knows, there is a surprising amount of intimacy to be found at the kitchen. And I can't think of a better start to a romantic evening at home with that special someone in your life than HelloFresh. With convenient delivery right to your doorstep, recipes that are easy to follow and quick to make, with simple steps and pictures to guide you along the way. HelloFresh offers so many delicious options every week to help you break out of your recipe rut and explore new and adventurous dishes that you might otherwise be intimidated by. With pre-portioned ingredients so you're not overbuying, and a streamlined supply chain that means produce gets to you faster and fresher than the grocery store, truly makes HelloFresh America's number one meal kit. I personally have kept all of the recipe cards I've gotten from HelloFresh, and still have their shroom and Swiss pork burger card magneted to my fridge, where it shall remain as I have remade the recipe twice already, officially placing it as a permanent fixture in my own personal warm, happy place. Damn, that burger is good. It's so good. It's just... Take a bite. Hell, take two. I can always make more. (laughs) So quit your salivating and start masticating. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 80Hill and use code 80HILL, that's 80Hill, to get a total of $80 off your first month, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. One more time, that's HelloFresh.com slash 80Hill. I gotta say... It's pretty darn good. Thank you for your support of this program and of the sponsors that make it possible. You've been listening to Foreign Bodies by author Adam Howe. Well, who's hungry? Nobody? Huh. We've one final tale for you before the curtain falls over our theater of the bazaar, and after that last one, you'd probably like some quiet time in a dark, empty room, 
to get those very well-articulated images out of your head. Well, too fucking bad. From author James Newman, I give you the honest-to-God true story of Earl P. and a bug called Abraham Lincoln. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It was that furious buzzing which woke Earl P. that morning. Otherwise, he had planned to sleep in, as he'd called the day before and canceled his 10.30 appointment with Dr. Heatherly. Earl came to beneath that oral assault slowly, the buzzing a frantic white noise so much like the static which always interfered with his favorite country station on the alarm clock every morning. Yet, this was somehow much more... organic. He identified the source of the noise right away, but in that foggy gray half-awakedness from which it always took him a few minutes to fully ascend... Earl did not realize at first that the damn thing was right in his ear, like a wriggling lump of earwax somehow come to life. Earl groaned, rolled over on his back, rattled off a four-letter word, or ten. Almost fully awake now, he stuck a finger in his ear, a finger that smelled like ass, he couldn't help but notice, musty butt smell which suggested he'd been scratching his while sleeping and the fly was abruptly forced out of its fleshy hiding place. The inset lit briefly on Earl's face, its tiny legs tickling through his dirty blonde beard before taking off again. It almost seemed to be showing off. Earl absent-mindedly watched the fly circle around near the ceiling, doing loop-de-loops and all this fancy shit up there like some kind of kamikaze pilot. Earl smacked his lips grimaced at that foul morning taste in his mouth, stuck a hand down his boxers and gave his balls the old first-thing-in-the-morning scratch, without even thinking about it, as he watched the thing buzzing about above him. It was one of those metallic green shitflies, as Earl's big brother Kay used to call them back when they were boys gazing with morbid interest upon dead things in the middle of the road. 
Those big blue bottle sons of bitches so fond of filth and stink like humans are fond of beer and sex and America's funniest home videos. Earl thought about getting up then, but with a glance at the clock realized it was only quarter after nine. He might as well roll over, try to catch a few more Z's. First, though, he knew he'd have to do something about that damn fly. Nothing like trying to sleep with one of those little bastards touching down on your naked legs every few minutes, crawling across your bare ass like maybe it's looking for a crevice in which to lay its eggs. Earl shuddered at that thought, considered getting up, trying to find the fly swatter. God, but it would take so much effort. And that's when the fly started talking to him. Good morning, Earl, the fly said. Its tone sort of sing-songy, but nonetheless sincere, as it came swooping down to perch on Earl's left nipple like an old friend. Its legs twitched and worked as it sat there looking at him, its movements reminding Earl of a cat, the way a cat will wash itself after dinner. Earl swallowed, his eyes big as golf balls, but surprisingly he found himself less shocked than he would have expected. Not that a green shit fly waking him up and suddenly carrying on a friendly conversation with him first thing in the morning was something that happened every day. Earl just found himself, strangely enough, accepting it. First thing through his sleep-fogged mind was, I guess this is what Doc Heatherly was talking about would happen if I didn't take my medicine. If only you knew, Doc. Oh, if only you knew. You look rough, Earl said the fly. Real rough. Like, maybe you haven't been taking your pills? Earl blinked at the fly and the bug almost seemed to smile. Its head tilted to one side, then back again, as if gauging Earl's reaction. Its great compound eyes stared at Earl, and he was quite sure had the fly been big enough he would have seen his own reflection there times ten million or so. I gotta get down to Eckerd's get a new prescription filled. Earl finally answered, unable to believe he was actually doing so. But there it was. He had opened the insect up to further conversation, and now there was no turning back. Why is it any business of yours anyway? You're just a fly, and a green shit fly at that. Oh, touché, said the fly. But I am a very smart fly, Earl. I observe things. Now the fly took off again, did a few dives through the air, lit once upon the snooze button of Earl's alarm clock, briefly upon the lampshade close by, for a second or two on the spine of the American President's book Earl had been flipping through before bed, then quickly returned to Earl. This time it made itself comfortable on his left forearm, blocking out the M in the Semper Fi part of Earl's faded U.S. Marine Corps tattoo. This is some fucked up shit, groaned Earl. Ain't it though? Buzzed the fly without missing a beat. Earl shook his head, sighed. Look, I'd really like to get some more sleep, he said. Can I help you with something, fly? The fly just sat there, staring at him for a few seconds before it spoke again. Earl was about to just shoo it away, roll over and try to doze some more, when finally the fly informed him. There's no need to be rude. I have a name, you know. Oh, said Earl. And what's that? My name, 
buzzed the fly, its tone a bit arrogant now, is Abraham Lincoln. What? What? Abraham? Earl started laughing. Great loud belly laughs that must have upset the fly's till then stationary rest stop. It took off again, perched a second later on top of Earl's right foot. Whereas Big Toe had been before it was amputated following a nail gun accident ten years ago. Abraham Lincoln? <sighs> That's a real hoot, Earl chortled. Guess you're going to recite the Gettysburg Address for me now. The fly did a little bounce on Earl's missing toe. Its own amusement showed in its tone. Sarcasm received and duly noted, Earl. You should have been a comedian instead of a postal worker. A long pause, if only for melodrama. Then the fly concluded, I know you don't believe me, Earl, but that's okay. You will. You have to eventually. Because there's something I need you to do for me. You want me to do what? Earl asked, stupefied. This fly had some nerve. You heard me. It wouldn't be that hard now, would it? Considering you don't like the man very much to begin with. Earl grunted, a reply that was intended as neither negative nor affirmative. Well, do you? The fly asked. Its tiny legs worked feverishly. Earl stared down at his bowl of soggy cornflakes, shook his head. The fly sat on the edge of his breakfast, gazing up at its giant man-friend impatiently. No, Earl finally admitted. I don't, actually. Guy's always bitching when I'm a couple of months late with the rent. You'd think that asshole was gonna go broke or something just cause one renter don't have his friggin' money. Exactly, said the fly. He is a dickhead. An inconsiderate prick who doesn't give one whit about other people's feelings. Plus, Earl added, he listens to gospel music and preaching tapes 24 hours a day. God damn, said the fly. This dude deserves to die. Earl watched as the fly took off for a minute, came down upon the opposite side of the dining room table. Its chrome green body glistened briefly in the overhead fluorescence, like some robotic entity come from the distant future to sit here and contest Earl's sanity. Then it buzzed around for a few more seconds, came down on Earl's left knuckle, but I'm not a killer fly, Earl finally spoke up. I, I can't. Abraham, please, the fly interrupted, walking across the back of Earl's hand. Or just Abe will suffice. Um, Abe, Earl stood corrected. Surely you can't expect me to murder my landlord. I'd be arrested. I could go to prison. The electric chair. Not if you do it right, Earl. There are ways around that, you know. Oh, really? Earl snorted in disbelief. Do tell. Hmm, for one thing, there's that unregistered gun in your dresser. You know, the one beneath your hustler collection. <laughs> Earl looked shocked that the fly knew about the gun. Or his hustler collection, for that matter. But he didn't ask how the fly knew. This fly knew a lot of things. Earl just sat there for a few minutes, thinking... He wondered if the fly also knew about Greta Goodhole, the blow-up doll he kept on the top shelf of his closet. Meanwhile, Abe's legs worked furious as ever. 
probably feeding microscopic morsels of sugar or shit into its hungry maw. It said nothing, just sat there and let Earl think it over. What the hell do you have against the guy anyway, Abe? Earl finally asked. What'd he ever do to you? Well, that's an easy one. Just take a moment to mull it over in that big brain of yours, Earl. What's this guy's name? John. John. John Booth. Hey. Earl started, but he was already realizing now just what was going down here. I think you get the picture, Earl. Revenge has been a long time coming. For God's sake, look where I ended up because of what that son of a bitch did to me. One second, I'm sitting there enjoying some fine theatrical entertainment, minding my own business. Next. BAM! I'm a goddamn fly! You ask me, that asshole's gonna be getting off way too easy anyway. Um, but why me? Earl asked. His mouth hung open. He closed it quickly, though, when the fly took to the air again. Cause damned if it didn't look like Abe wanted to go in there for a second or two. The fly came down again this time on the pale stripe of flesh on Earl's left ring finger, where Earl had not worn a wedding band for the better part of a year. Come on, Earl. What the hell good do you think I can do in this body? Be reasonable, man. Earl nodded slowly, staring off into space. I guess you have a point there. The fly almost seemed to nod. Its minuscule head bobbed up and down, silver compound eyes staring at Earl without blinking. Shit, Earl said. It was all he could think to say. Where? The fly took off, doing circles in the air, its voice several octaves higher with excitement. Earl smirked. It's just an expression. The fly settled down, returned to the table. <laughs> I know, Earl. Oh, Jesus, man, where's your sense of humor? Earl gave a dry chuckle, ran one hand through his dirty blonde hair. <laughs> he grunted. Very funny. Earl knocked on John Booth's door shortly after lunch that day, dressed in the postal worker's uniform he'd kept so clean and neatly folded even after they fired him. It looked brand new. Earl was scared, no doubt about it. But he felt a little more confident knowing the fly was with him. Mr. Lincoln was perched below, on his dick. Earl would not be alone in this, Abe had assured him. The fly would be with him every step of the way. With trembling hands, Earl checked the chamber of the 38 for the seventh or eighth time. Yes, plenty of ammo to go around if problems should arise. He swallowed, wiped at his sweaty brow with the back of one hand, then knocked again on Booth's door. He wondered what Heatherly would say if the good doc knew what he was up to right now. I'd probably go through the fucking roof. He could be like that sometimes. Earl knocked again. He stared at the grain in the wood of his landlord's apartment door, grinned nervously as the face he had seen there many times, a bizarre hybrid of Bob Hope and Jesus with a pair of saggy tits, winked at him. Or he thought it did. But that was crazy. Earl did not wink back. He knocked on the door once again. Finally, he could hear someone coming the muffled sounds of an old man cursing, of bedroom slippers sliding to the apartment foyer and up to the little view hole in the door. Earl made it a point to hold the gun down at waist level, 
so Booth would not be able to see it through the peephole. Who is it? Booth's voice came from the inside, scratchy as always, like sandpaper. It never failed to grate on Earl's nerves. It's me, sir. Earl P. Open the door, please. We need to talk. Yeah, open the door, you fucking murderer, came Abe's muffled voice from Earl's crotch. Earl stomped his foot. Shh. What the hell do you want, Earl? I was trying to take a dump. Now my ass is going to be all chapped. The sounds of a deadbolt being undone, a chain being slid out of the way. I hope to God you've got my rent money. With that, the door swung open. Earl felt a tickling sensation on the head of his cock. Probably Abraham Lincoln getting excited down there as he knew it was happening right now. And then Earl wasted no time at all in bringing the thirty-eight up and sending two hollow-point bullets straight through the old man's skull. Earl's landlord was dead before he even hit the floor. Earl hissed through his teeth. He hadn't expected to cause such a mess. But there was no turning back now. He chewed nervously at his bottom lip as he stepped into the apartment, pulling Booth's body away from the doorway so he could swing the door shut. The old man's head made chunky streaks in the linoleum there, the color of cherry pie gone to rot. Oh, God. Earl took a moment to regain his composure, to swallow back the bitter bile that rose in the back of his throat. What do we do now? He asked then, peering at Abraham Lincoln with moist eyes. As soon as he'd entered the apartment, the fly had emerged from the bottom of his pants and was buzzing about in the hallway. Its movements were frantic. The insect almost seemed agitated now, worried. What is it, Abe? Earl asked. His voice cracked. What, what is it, man? I... I don't. The fly seemed to be thinking, confused. It spun back toward him, then looped around in the opposite direction again. Tiny wings buzz, buzz, buzzing, almost ear-deafeningly loud. At least they seemed that way to Earl now. And then, the fly came to rest for a minute upon an eight-and-a-half by eleven gold-framed picture on the coffee table in the middle of Booth's living room. A photograph of a little boy in a blue baseball uniform. Patriots, read the logo there. A tiny bat slung over one shoulder, catcher's mitt on one hand. The kid was about nine years old, give or take. What is it, man? Earl asked, louder this time. His head began to throb. His teeth hurt. I... Um... I think I made a mistake, Earl, the fly said. No, man. I know I made a mistake. Oh, I knew I didn't feel right the second you opened the door. Shit, man, I am sorry. God, I fucked up. What do you mean you fucked up? Earl shouted. I screwed up. A simple case of mistaken identity, dude. I owe you one hell of an apology. What the hell are you saying, Abraham? Earl cried. What are you saying? The fly crawled across the photograph of that little boy now, as if looking for a place to hide in the photo child's various orifices. It found none. It wasn't the landlord, Earl. It... Ugh, it was his grandson. He's here visiting the old man. Yep. And... I felt the vibes. I'm sorry, man. It wasn't him. Shit. 
I think the guy you just killed used to be Buddha, actually. It was his grandson we needed to get, I think. What? Earl cried. He dropped to his knees. Yeah, we have to try again. We have to wait. I'm sorry, Earl, but we have to wait till the little bastard comes back. I... I... I can't, Earl stammered. I can't. We have no choice, Earl. We have to wait. We have to get him. I'm sure you understand. Earl glared at the fly, his mouth a stupefied O. Now, if you'll excuse me, finished the fly. I gots to go blow some eggs. And then the fly was gone, zipping past Earl to wait, as patient as could be upon the red-black splash of blood and brains behind John Booth's pale corpse. Earl cried and cried, but never let go of his gun, praying for Dr. Heatherly to come get him out of this. He cried and cried as behind him the fly began shrilly buzz-humming the tune to the doors. People are strange, between exaggerated slurping sounds, like someone abusing a straw cried and cried as the sounds of sirens in the city drew closer and closer and the high-pitched sound of childish laughter came nearer from down the hall. You've been listening to The Honest-to-God True Story of Earl P., and a bug called Abraham Lincoln by author James Newman. Now, I proudly present to you chapters three and four from the most deliciously debauched audiobook collaboration I've had the honor of being involved in. Scapegoat by James Newman and Adam Howe Read by yours truly. If you enjoy this reading, and I know you will, the full audiobook is available for purchase on audible.com. You will not regret downloading it today. And now, the continuation of the special bonus reading of Scapegoat. You can live out your master chef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Three. They were on the expressway making good time. Shortly after setting off, Lonnie had shoved a wrinkled road map in Mike's hands and informed him that it was his job to get them to the Silver Dome A.S.A.F. P. You're my co-pilot, bro. Lonnie made it sound like he was granting Mike some lifelong wish. The goose to my maverick. Speaking of which, he winked at Porkchop in the rear view. The big guy was slumped on the sofa behind them. Say, PC, Lonnie said. I feel the need. Together, they cackled. The need for weed. Porkchop started rolling the first J. Mike continued tracing their route on the road map. 
If all went as planned, taking into account that with Lonnie Devereaux things rarely ever did, the drive to Pontiac, Michigan would take them no more than twelve hours, allowing for pit stops along the way. I-40 should take us up to I-65, which will lead us into Kentucky, up through the Buckeye State. From there, it's a straight shot to Michigan. Something wrong with your beer? Lonnie asked him. Mike glanced up from the map. Huh? Your beer. Something wrong with it? Mike took a bird-like sip. Just pacing myself. The hell for? Lonnie slugged hard at his own beer as if he felt obliged to drink for the both of them. Mike double-checked to make sure he had fastened his seatbelt. Hi, he said. Thanks for inviting me, man. I mean it. I've been going kind of stir-crazy. I haven't had a night to myself since the baby was born. Since months before the baby was born, now that he thought about it. Of course, Mike knew Rachel had it worse than he did. He made a mental note to return the favor and make sure she got a night to herself sometime soon. They not a brother, Lonnie said. It has been too long. And it had been a long time. Mike wasn't proud of it. But then, five minutes back in Lonnie's company, he remembered why that was. He loved the dumb bastard and the memories they shared, but could only tolerate him in small doses these days. So how's Daddy Hood treating you? Lonnie said with a smirk. The answer was already written in the tired lines on Mike's face, the matching luggage under his eyes. I'll let you know when I get a second to breathe. You should have taken my advice, bro. What's that? A-P-O. Huh? Always pull out. <laughs> Porkchop snorted beer through his nose, half laughing, half choking. Ah, Mike said. Little moments that make it all worthwhile. Lonnie looked unconvinced. You ever thought about it? Mike asked him. What? Lonnie sputtered. About having a rug rat? Yeah, you know. Settle down, take some responsibility. He resisted the urge to add, grow up. Fuck that shit, said Lonnie. I value my freedom too much. Mike glanced around the squalid motorhome and give up all this. The pity he felt for his old pal was tempered by the question nagging at the back of his brain ever since Lonnie's late call. How could Lonnie Devereaux afford ringside seats to WrestleMania? Shit, was he dealing weed again? So, Mike said, probing for answers, how much do I owe you for the ticket? Really, Mikey, you're going to insult me like that? Cheapen years of friendship with vulgar talk of money? But, I mean, ringside seats can't be cheap. Lonnie whistled through the gap in his front teeth. They're not. You win the lottery or something? Relax, Mikey, I got the tickets, okay? Mike mimed, zipping his lips. Good as in my hands, Lonnie muttered. Mike frowned. What's that mean? You see those boxes back there? Lonnie said with a jerk of his thumb. Full bootleg wrestling merch. Like this snazzy number. He preened his Hulkamania muscle shirt like a home shopping network model. Bet you thought it was the real McCoy, huh? Gotta hand it to those sweatshop kids, they do great work. So, anyway... This guy I know, buddy of mine, he says we deliver the merch for him to sell at the event, and those ringside seats are ours. Mike sank down in his seat. Jesus, Lonnie, you could have told me this earlier. What's the problem? Leaving aside the legalities, it's a long way to drive for a promise. Chill, Mikey, I got a plan B. In the unlikely event my guy does not come through with the tickets, 
Cindy from the bar says she'll blow Randy Savage, earn us VIP passes. Mike wondered if the macho man knew about Plan B. Oh, yeah. And who, Cindy from the bar? Can I come out now? said a voice from the back of the RV. Mike, meet Cindy from the bar. She must have been hiding in the bathroom, and thank Christ Rachel hadn't seen her, Mike thought. His wife would have been a lot less cool about this trip had she known there were women coming, especially a woman like Cindy from the bar. Shock of bottle blonde hair held stiffly in place by enough hairspray it probably punched its own hole to the ozone layer. Fashionably ripped fishnet tights, butt-hugging Daisy Duke shorts held up with suspenders, and a Hulkamania tube top that looked so much better on her than Lonnie's muscle shirt looked on him. Mike tried valiantly to maintain eye contact as she tottered toward the cockpit. Cindy's breasts, straining against the flimsy fabric of her tube top, swayed with the motion of the motorhome, slapping together like a fleshy Newton's cradle. Oh, she exclaimed, he's cute. Her voice was a Betty Boop on helium squeak. Mike flashed his wedding ring. He's also married, Cindy giggled. You're funny. Why don't you give my boy Mikey a back rub? Lonnie winked at Mike. He looks a little tense. Cindy strutted forward. Not interested, Mike said. Thanks all the same. What happens at WrestleMania, Lonnie assured him, stays at WrestleMania. Nothing's gonna happen, Mike firmly replied. Porkchop snickered. You turn fag on us, Mikey. You found me out, PC. The wife and kids are my cover. Cindy planted herself on the sofa behind the front seats and tousled Mike's hair. You just give me a holler, you change your mind, handsome. I'll take a bike rope, Porkchop said, generously. She sneered at him. Shut up, PC. Any more surprises you want to tell me about? Mike asked Lonnie. You gonna be like this the whole trip, Mikey? Like what? The word asshole comes to mind. You won't wear a shirt. You've hardly touched your beer. And now you turn down a back rub from a hot piece of tail like Cindy. You're really bringing me down, man. Was Lonnie right? Mike wondered. Was he being an asshole here? Why'd he even come on this trip if he was just gonna piss and moan? Mike drained the rest of his beer in one long swallow, crushed the empty can in his fist, and said, Set me up another tall boy, PC. Lonnie slapped him on the back. And a muscle shirt? Just the beer is fine. Four. Four beers later, Mike quickly discovered how out of practice he was. He'd refused the last didgeridoo-sized doobie pork chop rolled, at least until the second time it was passed his way. By then, the motorhome was choked with sweet-smelling smoke. He figured he was getting a contact high anyway. Might as well go all in. The beer and weed went straight to his head, and how his face felt tingly and warm, smeared with a sloppy smile as he melted down into the passenger seat. Struggling to focus... To keep his damn eyes open, Mike marveled at how Lonnie and Porkchop still partied like they were punk kids. They just never stopped, he guessed. He decided he should start pacing himself. There were still many miles ahead of them. If he didn't slow down, he'd be wasted long before they arrived at the Silver Dome. Mike glanced back at Porkchop. 
The big guy looked ridiculous in his plaid kilt and novelty beer hat. PC was currently attempting to attach a bottle of Jack and a can of Coke to either side of the hard hat. He was already shit-faced. But if this weird science project proved successful, Mike estimated that Rip Van Porkchop might just regain consciousness in time for next year's WrestleMania. The sound of Lonnie blatting the horn startled Mike from his reverie. With a shock of clarity, he saw they were stuck in gridlock. Ahead of them, a column of black smoke billowed up from the site of an auto accident, blocking the lanes of the expressway. State troopers and EMS vehicles swarmed the scene. Fuck a duck, Lonnie said. Needless to say, patience was not high among Lonnie's virtues. In fact, Mike was hard-pressed to name one virtue. He might have cited generosity with WrestleMania tickets, except he now knew the tickets were far from guaranteed. Lonnie honked the horn relentlessly to the fury of other drivers surrounding them. They honked back, swore at him. Mike tried to be the voice of reason. Lonnie, he said, fanning smoke from his eyes. You're driving a bong on wheels, carrying a load of bootleg wrestling merch. You really want to draw so much attention? Point! Lonnie laid off the horn. He glanced at his wristwatch, cursing the victims of the accident. I didn't know any better. I'd think the cocksuckers did this on purpose. Doesn't anybody know how to drive anymore? Right, we're gone. We're gonna miss the undercard. Porkchop whined. You think I don't know that, PC? Mike wondered how long they'd been stuck here. And more importantly, what the hell was Cindy doing sitting on his lap? He tried to think back, but his memory was hazy. He vaguely recalled that she had continued playing with his hair and teasing her nails down the nape of his neck until he'd finally consented to a back rub. What was the harm? Well, that might have been the beer talking. As her fingers expertly kneaded his shoulders, God damn, that felt good. She had brushed her breasts against his scalp, and God damn, that felt even better. Next thing he knew, she was perched on his lap like a kid rattling off her Christmas list in Santa's ear. Cindy, Mike said, would you be a doll and move back to the sofa? I'm comfy right here, thank you kindly. Mike cut a pleading glance at Lonnie. Get her off me, would you? Lonnie fired back a conspirator's wink. What happens at WrestleMania stays at WrestleMania. Cindy, please? Mike chuckled nervously. My legs are going numb. The hell's that supposed to mean? You calling me fat? No, Mike stammered. I, um, I didn't mean, look, <laughs> I'm numb all over. All over, Mike thought. Ugh, if only that were true. Alcohol wasn't the only thing from which he had abstained during Rachel's pregnancy. He was hornier than a pubescent boy at the Playboy Mansion, and got wood if the wind changed direction suddenly. Please don't get hard. Please don't get hard. So? Cindy said, stubbornly settled on Mike's lap. You guys grew up together? Grew up together, Lonnie said. And we should have rolled the rock and roll roost together. Ain't that right, Mikey? Here it comes, Mike thought. Lonnie's let's get the band back together bit. One of these days, swear to God, we're going to get the band back together. Mike bit his tongue. Take a look in the glove box, sweet thing, Lonnie told Cindy. She opened the glove, rooting through the clutter. What am I looking for? Lonnie gestured to a cassette tape in the cracked plastic case. Buried treasure. Cindy blew the dust off the case and examined the cover. 
Rathbone was scrawled in whiteout across the cover image, a grainy black and white photo of the band loitering outside the neon lit window of a liquor store, all glam metal hair and try hard macho pounce. Beneath the photo, in faded dot matrix print, was a crooked legend. Rathbone is Lonnie Lovegun Devereaux, guitar, Vox, Mike Rocksoff Rawson, bass, pork chop, drums. Mike snatched the tape from Cindy's hands. Where the hell did you find this? He couldn't help chuckling at his teenage self's earnest watch-out world expression and rooster crest of teased hair. Never lost it, Lonnie said. You think I'd just throw away an artifact of musical history? Rode hard, put up wet, was Rathbone's one and only demo, featuring the tracks Well Hung Hangover, Just Say Yes, and Spread Em Wide. The demo was never released to the public, probably a good thing, Mike thought, though he hadn't heard the tape in years. Adding to the band's mystique was the fact that they'd never played a single live gig. They'd been scheduled to debut at the Battle of the Bands at the State Fair, but the night before the show, Porkchop's dad, a hard-ass Vietnam veteran, caught Porkchop perfecting his stage makeup in the bathroom mirror. Accusing his son of being a fairy, he beat the shit out of him breaking Porkchop's wrist before burning his drum kit out back of their double-wide, like he was back in Nam, raising VC villas to the ground. Two weeks later, Mike left town to take a job with his uncle, and Rathbone's legacy was over before it began. A tragic loss to hair metal. Whoa, Lonnie, Cindy swooned over his picture. You are hot. The hell you mean were? Lonnie double-checked his reflection in the rear view confirming that he was as buff as he remembered. Lonnie started telling Cindy war stories from back in the day. Mike felt embarrassed for them all as his old friend cataloged their punk kid escapades. It was a miracle no one had died. To look at him now, I know it's hard to believe, but this guy... Lonnie pinched Mike's cheek. This guy was a motherfucking animal. What happened? Cindy asked. The same fate that befalls every great man, Lonnie told her. He went and got hitched. He shook his head gravely. Fucking tragedy. Hey. Mike dragged Cindy off his lap and teetered to his feet. I started a family. That's hot. Mm, hardly a tragedy. You didn't have to skip town, though. Lonnie looked genuinely hurt as if he'd been stewing on this for years. We could have set the West Memphis club scene on fire. Once PC replaced his kit and his arm healed. But no... You decided you'd rather move to Cum Dump, Tennessee, and sit behind a desk all day. Humboldt, Mike said. If Lonnie heard Mike correct him, he didn't acknowledge it. Instead, he glanced down at the tented crotch of Mike's jeans. Look out! You got a concealed carry permit for that thing, Mr. Family Man? Ew! Cindy said. Porkchop pointed and laughed. Mike felt his face burning red as he tugged his shirt down. The fuck is the matter with you, man? I am sorry about what happened with you and Wendy, but don't lay your shit on me. He stomped to the kitchen, fetched another beer, and tried to drink himself sober. Not to mention flaccid. I knew this trip was a mistake. Come on, Mikey, you know I'm just breaking your balls. But it was more than that. Lonnie had never forgiven him for bailing on the band. For all Lonnie's talk of fame and fortune, Mike had always known they were chasing a fool's dream with the rock and roll stuff. Porkchop's injury had been an easy excuse for Mike to quit, 
and take that job his Uncle Pat had offered him. Uncle Pat was the operations manager of a factory that manufactured golf balls in Humboldt, Tennessee. He told Mike that once he graduated from high school, when he was ready to straighten up and fly right, there would be a job waiting for him. If Mike assumed he'd be waltzing his way to a cushy desk job in the factory accounting department, however, he was in for a surprise. While he did make a decent living as an accountant these days, he'd had to work like a dog to get there, vacuuming offices, mopping floors, and cleaning toilets, while he went to night school to earn his CPA license. We all gotta start somewhere, Uncle Pat told him. Sooner or later, it's time to grow up and act like a responsible adult. Mike wondered when that day would come for Lonnie and Porkchop, if it ever did. An awkward silence filled the motorhome. Lonnie took the cassette from Cindy, slammed it in the tape deck, and cranked the volume. A squawk of feedback, a chugging guitar riff, a heart attack blast of drums. Wincing at the noise, Mike's first thought was that the tape must have warped with age. Then he remembered. Nope. That's just how badly we played. Lonnie's screeching vocal shrilled from the speakers like a metal castrato, and the rest of the group joined in an emphatic call and response. Spread them wide, honey. If you got the love, then I got the money. Spread them wide, baby. You got what I need. And I don't mean maybe. Porkchop started drumming an off-tempo rhythm. Oh, hell yeah. Turn that shit off, Mike said although he couldn't help cracking a smile. Spread them wide, Mikey, Lonnie sang to him. Mike shook his head, laughed. Asshole. We cool, bro, Mike sighed. Yeah, we're cool. Cindy clamped her hands over her ears. Oh, you guys are so not cool. Mike and Lonnie laughed together. All right, fuck this, Lonnie suddenly said. Hold on to your asses, wrestling fans. He wrenched the shift, throwing Jezebel into gear, stomped the gas pedal and started bullying the rig across the congested lanes toward the exit ramp. Other drivers reacted in a fury of blaring horns and profanity. Lonnie! Cindy clutched the dash to avoid being bucked from the passenger seat. What the hell are you doing? Taking a shortcut. Don't you want to see the wreck? Porkchop said. No time. Well, we've waited this long. Don't worry, PC. You'll see all the blood you want at the fight. Mike stifled a smirk. The fight. Like they were on their way to see Ali versus Frazier. Not a wrestling match with a prearranged outcome. He didn't dare say this to Lonnie, of course. Lonnie took his wrestling deadly serious. Always had. And truth be told, Mike didn't want to miss the fight either. Hogan versus the Giant promised to be a battle for the ages. Porkchop shoved his head out an open window and started barking at the drivers ahead of them. Mike a hole! Mike a hole! Gradually, Lonnie muscled the motorhome onto the exit ramp. Before them loomed a vast sprawl of Kentucky woods. Mike muttered something about how he'd seen enough horror movies to know nothing good ever came from a shortcut through the woods. Lonnie laughed off his concerns. Between being hacked to death by some kill-crazy redneck and missing the fight, brother... I will take my chances. If you'd like to hear the whole book, and I know you do, it is available for purchase on audible.com. Check out the link in the show notes and start listening today. It's grisly good fun. 
and definitely not for the squeamish. <laughs> I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify, plumbed from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. Tonight's episode featured tales from the very talented James Newman and Adam Howe. The good, the bad, and the maladjusted, as well as the honest-to-God true story of Earl P. and a bug called Abraham Lincoln, were brought to you courtesy of James Newman. James is the author of a diverse selection of horror and suspense tales, dark fiction told with a distinct southern voice, and, more often than not, with a hint of pitch-black humor. His published works include Midnight Rain, The Wicked, Animosity, Ugliest Sin, Odd Man Out, and Scapegoat, co-written with Adam Howe. Up next is In the Scrape, co-written with Mark Steensland. For more information, or to get in touch, follow him on Twitter at at NewmanJam, spelled N-E-W-M-A-N, J-A-M Newman Jam Foreign Bodies was written by and brought to you courtesy of Adam Howe Adam Howe writes the twisted fiction your mother warned you about A method writer You do not want to know the lengths to which he researched foreign bodies He is the author of Die Dog or Eat the Hatchet Tijuana Donkey Show And the editor of the WrestleManiacs Anthology Writing as Garrett Adams, his short story, Jumper, was chosen by Stephen King as the winner of the International On Writing Contest and published in the paperback and Kindle editions of King's book. His most recent work is Scapegoat, co-written with James Newman and available on Audible, read by Jason Hill. Coming soon are action comedy, One Tough Bastard, and hard-boiled crime, The Pollock, co-written with Joseph Hirsch. You can stalk him at Facebook, Goodreads, and Twitter at Adam underscore G underscore How. That's How, H-O-W-E. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Thank you so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, 
you help support this show, and that means a lot to me as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness. I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshak. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshak. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. 
fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.